Employment discrimination is illegal and takes many forms. Religion. Race. Workers' compensation claims. Gender. Age. Disability. If you believe your employer has illegally fired or retaliated against you, contact us. Protecting your employment rights. Why we do what we do. The Law Offices of Stephen New. These matches are sanctioned by the State Athletic Commission. The official timekeeper, Harry Black. The referee assigned for this match, the Dean of the Referees, Connie Marker. This match, one fall, 30-minute time limit. Introducing from Nashville, Tennessee, with a combined weight of 520 pounds, the Bounty Hunters. And their manager, Cashbox Kemp. Their opponents from Evergreen Park, Illinois, weighing 232 pounds, the golden boy, Paul Christie. And his partner from Roma, Italy, weighing 260 pounds, Dominic... Danucci. Dominic Danucci. Ladies and gentlemen, Dominic Danucci, one of the greatest wrestlers in America. And we're very fortunate that he is here with us today. This is it tonight, Welcome to Franchise with Shane Douglas. Franchises, we are back. And this week, we're talking about a legend. But, and before we talk about that legend, let's talk to another legend. Shane Douglas, how are you doing today, sir? In this twilight zone, believe it or not, I'm still going great. Busier than I've probably ever been. Doing literally nothing but running a million places every damn day and have not yet caught the COVID. Haven't caught the virus. This, this ubiquitous killer that's out everywhere getting everybody. So far, it must not like my type of blonde hair. <laughs> well, if it's going to get uh, Shane Douglas, it's going to have to fucking earn it, right? <laughs> Goddamn right. <laughs> so uh, what's going on in your town? Is it still crazy COVID or are people kind of slacking off or, or what's going on? Well, I'll give you an example. I just walked out of the grocery store. I, I literally started belly laughing out loud because, of course, as soon as I come out the door, I pull my mask down, right, because I'm afraid of the boogeyman. And as I'm walking walking out of the store, I see a lady walking toward me, mask already in place, and she literally walks 30 feet to her right to walk around me. I'm radioactive, don't you? Know? you can't, I see you without that mask. You're, that mask is doing nothing. I'm going to walk away from you. I mean, all you can do is laugh at it anymore. I saw another guy pull in right after I got into my car. He pulls in in his truck. He obviously doesn't have the virus because he's wearing his mask by himself in a truck. He doesn't got it, but he doesn't want to give it to himself, I'm guessing, because it's only him in his truck. So <laughs> somebody's going to explain to me, the guy that, or the woman that drives down the street by themselves in their car, wind is up, wearing their mask. Like, who are they protecting themselves from? It's just, it's comical. 
Well, you know, there. I mean, there's people that don't understand everything on both sides of the of the mask argument. There's people that say, "Hey, wear your masks." That don't understand that you don't have to wear your masks if you're not around anybody else or if you're around somebody that you're living with. But they're wearing their masks regardless. And then on the other side, you know, there's people that don't even understand why you're supposed to wear masks. And it's just a crazy world full of people who are arguing over a face mask. It's just unbelievable. I don't. I don't even get it. Well, I, I think I can explain that. When you look at, uh, I think it was Wall Street Journal, I can't remember the source. I sent it out to several people earlier week. It, it, it was called uh, uh, the COVID pandemic information cluster dot, 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 right? Because the information we've been given, it's black, it's white, it's gray, it's chartreuse, it's plaid. The information is all over the place, right? And so when we're getting, you shouldn't wear a face mask a face mask now it should be a face mask goggles and a shield and you know all the rest of this stuff coming from the cdc conversely here the cdc telling us that schools should reopen and my son's school just announced the same exact day that they're going to stay shut down through january and reassess in january the cdc is saying this is going to have major health ramifications on our kids far beyond what the COVID that they don't typically get because their their immune systems can fight off the, 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 the what's called the viral load that you would have to get to become infectious to other people. So, again, we're all over the place. All Americans, human beings, need information, accurate information to be able to formulate a real idea or thought of how they want to proceed. So you're right. The people that are wearing their masks by themselves in their car, they're terrified of this thing because the information is all over the place. And the people like me that ain't buying it so much, uh, it's because the information is all over the damn place. Give us one standard set of information that's accurate, and you can't pull the legs out from under it, and you'll find com- complete conformity, I believe. But until then, and as long as this thing keeps moving target, you're aiming your gun, but I keep moving the target. How are you going to hit the target? You can't, unless you get damn lucky and you take a plot shot. That's no way to formulate a base about a proceed, especially when it's supposedly something so deadly, right? Give us accurate, standard, factual information, and you'll have conformity and less in fear. I mean, isn't it kind of the same principle as cover your mouth when you sneeze? I, I, I don't know that. I just I just don't understand why it's so big of a deal or why so much has to be put into it. You know, like at, at this point, you know, when you're in public, wear your mask. When you're not in public, don't wear your mask. It, it, I, I don't know. I, I just don't feel like it's that important. Like to to argue about, we should just be wearing our masks. Not that masks are not that important. I'm just saying that that we should be wearing our masks. That's that, that's where I'm at, and, and I guess mainly, but that's because I'm in Florida, where the numbers are ridiculous and where things are going crazy. And and as far as you talking about schools, man, I'm terrified to send my kids back to school. Like I I don't trust children all with a virus. I I, I don't. I don't know how anyone could like. Uh, I mean, are you you're okay with sending sending Connor back to school? Well, Connor's out of school. I mean, uh, Kate, absolutely. No, Kate, I'm absolutely comfortable sending Kate. Absolutely, one hundred percent. You're not worried about him at all, sending him back into that type of situation. No more so than during the flu season last year when we had a flu. Did you, did you worry about sending your kid to school? No, I didn't. But the flu. And, and, and then we're back again to the information part. A friend of mine in Louisiana called me last week laughing and said, well, your conspiracy theory finally got me. I said, okay, what happened? She took her 80-year-old aunt to the hospital, wasn't feeling well. Uh, Of course, you can't go to the hospital. You call ahead, and then they say they'll come out and get you when they're ready for you. 
They sat in the parking lot for four hours. Her aunt never got out of the car. After four hours, she said, I'm tired. I'm going to lay down. If I still don't feel well, tomorrow we'll come back. So she takes her aunt home. As she's pulling into her driveway at her home, she gets called from the hospital that her aunt, who never went into the hospital, tested positive. Whoops. How'd that slip? I mean, somebody's got to explain that to me somehow through the air or maybe the the Jedi Star Force or something. She was able to transmit her data into the hospital, and they know that just because she's 80 years old, she's got it. And I've heard that story ad nauseum on the radio station. I listen to WKBN out of uh, Youngstown every morning. They had 12, 13, 14 people the other day calling and say that exact same story. And like the guy on the radio said, these are far too many people to be making it up. So... I'm sorry. How do I test positive for a test I didn't take? It's again, it's every place. You know, and all the information we're getting, it's all over the place. And 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 as for like the wear the mask, not wear the mask, I start from the point I have an inherent deep distrust of government. And so when they're telling me wear a mask, just because we tell you to, even though we told you didn't have to, now we're telling you, you have to. When I've had how many microbiology and virology courses that I understand that this bandana around my nose ain't doing a damn thing to stop the virus so what is it is it up is it down is it it is it out is it right is it wrong i don't know but, you know but the information that i'm reading through and i wean through tons of this shit every week because i definitely want to have my finger on on the pulse of this thing if it's that deadly but so far based on everything the totality of the information the data i'm seeing i 100 percent feel confident in sending my son to school I 100% feel confident walking around without a mask whenever I don't need to have one. The only way, reason I put on going into a store is because, A, you have to, and, B, I'm being respectful of all the other sheep out there that are fearful that I'm going to cough or sneeze on them. In general, when I feel a sneeze coming on, I don't sneeze on people. I usually cover my face. Whenever I talk to people, I usually don't spit on people when I'm talking to them, just in general. So, again, I, it's all over the place to me. And the one thing I can tell you with absolute certainty, when the government tells you two plus two equals six, you know government's up to something. But I know damn right well two plus two does not equal six. And all of the data, you can't disagree, all of the data we've seen has been literally all over the place. Well, all the data definitely leads us to believe that two plus two does not equal six. I will agree with that. For sure. (laughs) Bingo. (laughs) and don't ever trust government all right since we're talking about things that that do not make sense we should definitely talk about extreme rules for a second before we get into our episode today and i know that you didn't watch extreme rules but there you know a couple things that i wanted to touch on that uh that i think that that you might agree with and and, or maybe disagree with but i want to start out with i mean there were a lot of matches we're not going to talk about all of them but one that kind of stood out to me was in a positive way was Sasha Banks versus Oscar, and I was kind of I was kind of split on this because I, I really I'm a huge Oscar fan and she just got the title so I wanted to keep the title but I'm also a really big fan of the idea that Sasha Banks and Bailey could have the title from each big title of New Champions. I think that that that's a really cool thought that could happen. So I was kind of split there and. They ended it the best way they possibly could with Sasha Banks making the pin as Bailey being the ref because the ref, you know, was knocked out. She leaves with the title. We get to, to see that picture of Sasha Banks and Bailey having all four belts, but Oscar was not actually beaten for that. Now that that kind of makes um, it, it's kind of cool because no one got buried in that situation 
What uh, What do you think about that? I like both girls. I, you know, I like Sasha. I like Austin. I love Austin. I'm really a fan of her work. To me, the finish, though, I, I like the, the notion of Fields holding, you know, all, all the belts. And, you, you know, that, that gives a lot of heat and gives momentum. But, you know, think of an NFL football game. Okay, the the uh, the referee gets knocked down, and some fan or some friend of one of the players comes running in and holds their hands up and says, "Touchdown!" It wouldn't fly, right? You know, it, right. it just wouldn't fly. But again, like I always say in wrestling, we're only limited by the things we can create in our mind. Just spend a few more seconds on trying to figure out how you can have the two of them walking out with the belt. It gives Oscar the babyface, you know, real argument. Right, you know, and the heels argument—a good heels argument—is always convincing, but you can pull the legs out from under because it, it doesn't hold water. But you know, when they got the, you know, they're walking out because it just happens to be that the one person that jumped in there in the match is her partner. It, it just looks too, too sports entertainmenty, if that makes sense. You know, just be a little more creative on it because now you've stolen the babyface's belt and you have the impetus that everybody knows she didn't lose. Right, just get, just work on the creative side of it a little bit more. But then again, when you have writers that are what twenty three, four, five years old that have a resume from Los Angeles or Hollywood as opposed to professional wrestling, you can see why they wouldn't understand that nuanceical approach to it. All right, so in Extreme Rules, there were also you know with with Sasha Banks and 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 Oscar being the top in my opinion of matches for that night. There are also some other matches that uh, you know. I just just didn't do it for me. Rey Mysterio Jr. versus Seth Rollins. And I think the reason why this didn't do it for me was because the stipulation was you had to pull your opponent's eyeball out of your out of their head. Um yeah. maybe one of the dumbest stipulations ever. I I just I don't get it. I don't understand why they would even do this. And then I was thinking, you know, maybe they were going to do this so that they could add an eye patch to Seth Rollins's cult leader character, which might be kind of cool. And he's been trying to be that guy from Far Cry anyway, so it would work out really well if he had an eye patch. But then Ray loses, so he just gets his eyeball stabbed again, and and now he could be blinded and. And it's led to to his son being involved in in moments on Raw, and I just don't think that uh, I don't think this is the right direction. I, I'd love to hear your take on a match where the eyeball must be removed before the win takes place. Well, I mean, several thoughts. First of all, as far as I know, we're going to talk about him later, but I'll invoke him now. I wish I could convey through the internet to everybody listening. Dominic Danucci's face whenever I explained to him the rules of this match and then I showed him the picture of the aftermath. <laughs> it was a, a, about as tremendous as you'd expect it to be. My my thinking on this match going in, as stupid as the stipulation was and is, was that they were going to do this in one of their cinematic movie-style type matches, right, where they could put real special effects in and, and maybe at least try to spice it up a little bit. It might have been better that way. Yeah, you know, and they had a couple of those matches on that night, right? But but now think about the audience you're 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 trying to collect. You obviously would like to try to get some of that forty eight million that have tuned out back. There ain't one of them going to sit there and say, "Holy shit, one of these guys is going to lose an eye tonight." Let's tune in. They see it as stupid as we see it. How about to the kids? You know, the ten, eleven, twelve year olds 
I personally wouldn't want my kid watching something where he thinks somebody's going to lose an eyeball. Well, uh, I was I, I was thinking back to like the things that kind of horrified me was like like when earthquake squashed Damien, and that I was kind of horrified as a child. I cannot imagine if you know earthquake would have spooned Jake's eyeball out. That might have been a little bit you know over the limit for me, even even for me. And I was a pretty hardcore kid. I, I like to believe. Sure, and and more more to that. Would your would your parents have wanted you to watch something like that if you were that wigged out by an earthquake going to squash? Um, you know, so you're all over the place here. But to me, the backdrop to this whole thing is for what nearly forty years now, Vince has told us it's all a work, it's all fake. Now, believe this this coming weekend, we're going to have a pay per view. One of our wrestlers is literally going to lose an eye. You know, you spit in the wind for how long, and now one of those hawkers pop back in your face can't hardly be surprised you know it's so i'm i'm trying to figure out does the wwe understand what industry it's in because you're pushing the pool i'm not going to sit there and tell you a thousand times hey the match i'm going to have this coming saturday night with taz and ecw arena it's all space now tune in so i'm going to kill the bastard uh it's just <laughs> ridiculous it, 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 you know again pushing the pool it, it's the same thing like i say every year at wrestlemania right just using me and Taz again because I, I invoked that. You know, everybody knew this historic clashing of two monolith titans in ECW. Now imagine if right before the pay-per-view where we finally faced off against each other, you saw a picture from us the night before in suit and ties having a glass of wine together, arms around each other smiling. I just don't get what that lends to anything. You know, if you're, you're going to write a storyline, if you're going to have Let's say you're doing a sitcom, okay? You're, you've written a sitcom. You want the people to laugh when they watch it. But if beforehand you say, okay, here's all the jokes in tonight's episode. This, this character's going to do this to that one. That one's going to do this to that one. This one's going to throw a pie in that one's face. When it happens, you'd, you'd almost feel let down because it's not going to live up to what you've already put in your head beforehand. Now, that said about the pre-leading into the match. Now, the post coming out of the match. Or the picture of Ray holding what looked to be a ping pong ball dipped in red paint or red magic marker was so laughable, so absurd. That that's what my first thought was as soon as they did it. Why didn't they do this as a movie type match, a cinematic type match, and insert like real special effects or something that didn't look the damn corny? But again, you're, you're pushing the pull and spitting in the wind. That's true. That's true. And this uh, this pay per view continued on. I don't know if you know this or not. It was called the Horror Show. That's uh, that's what they called it, the Horror Show. And you'd think they would save something called the Horror Show for maybe a, a pay per view they would bring back called Halloween Havoc, or you know, since you yeah. own it and you're just like letting it go by the wayside, or maybe even just do it in October when it makes sense. But uh, but to just throw the horror show as the name of this pay per view, I didn't I didn't dig that either. Yeah, and, and one final point about Rey Mysterio Jr. right in this match, I versus Amara. Wasn't it just a month or two ago we saw him thrown off Titan Tower? <laughs> yeah, it is. We did see him you know, thrown off Titan this, Tower. Yeah, this, this is either Superman without a cape or it's just silly, stupid sports entertainment. Now all of a sudden you're trying to convince me, ping pong ball and all that somebody's lost an eye. I mean, I, I honestly don't know if they really understand the industry they're in anymore. Have they been in the weeds so long that they don't see the, the forest through the trees? I don't know because it seems really silly to me. The concept, the execution, the, the post just seems to be so silly. I don't know who's buying into it. I think kids would be laughing at it, 
I know fans from my generation will be rolling their eyes at it, and I don't think either of those are fun you want to have from your audience. My kids' uh, reaction to the eyeball match was more like uh, they they couldn't believe that that was actually the stipulation. Like they were just as confused as as I am, but more like disgusted and horrified than I was. Yeah, because again, young and don't understand, right? I uh, again, it's my, you know my my youngest is fourteen, but if he were ten, eleven, twelve, I'm not sure I'd want him to watch that. You know, I, any more than I thought kids should be watching ECW. I was. Uh, my 14 year old, I don't think I've ever sat down with him and watched DCW yet. I'm sure he's probably as, as ubiquitous as these kids are uh, on the internet and able to pull stuff up. I'm a, I'm a tech idiot compared to kids. I'm sure he's seen his share of it. But I certainly wouldn't sit down, even now at 14, and say, okay, here comes all this vulgar language and blood and, you know, violence and women getting knocked around and all the rest of it. Uh, I don't know if I would really want him to watch that just yet. Well, just like uh, you know, just like every pay per view, of course, there were two world title matches. You had your WWE World Title match with Drew McIntyre and Dolph Ziggler, which was good. Which, of course, we expect that from Drew McIntyre and Dolph Ziggler. I mean, of course, they're going to put on a great match, but it was it was pretty normal to to their standard of what they do. And then we seen another cinematic movie match, which we're we're looking at Braun Strowman versus Bray Wyatt in the swamp, and Bray is back to the original. Bray Wyatt for this gimmick, and it was uh, it, it was interesting. To, uh, one of the scenes has Braun Strowman chained to a chair, and all I could think about was you know Braun Strowman has turned over a semi truck, he has flipped yeah. an ambulance, he's done all these things that are, are ridiculous, but he can't break these chains and be un- unleashed from this chair. It just didn't make sense. Yeah. Well, first of all, how'd you get him chained into the chair, right? That's the first thing. Secondly, with the cinematic part of this, again, like going back to like, are you pushing or pulling? You have, To me, you're going to have a match, a cinematic match, and a thing called the Swamp Match on the horror show. I think the Fiend is a little more comparable for that, isn't it? At least in my, my view as a veteran of the business, I would seem to think that one character seems far more suited to that than the other. Am I not wrong? Am I wrong? Um, you're kind of wrong because Bray Wyatt is kind of like that eater of worlds from the swamp. So um, to to take it to the swamp, then I think that you're more likely to have the original Bray Wyatt. I mean, if it was sort of like if it was going to be in the in the funhouse, it would have to be the the Bray Wyatt with the sweater. You know what I mean? It's it, Bray Wyatt, the original, and is the one from the swamp. Yeah, but then you also need a puppet, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, no matter which way you go, you keep. You know, it's, just, it's, it's so all over the place, all of this stuff. But to me, like I said to you before we came on the air, if you're going to do a cinematic, is, is that what they call them, cinematic matches? I think that uh, that's I, just I what I called it. It might not be called that. Okay, well, we'll use that term to try to, you know, uh, universalize uh, so we have a standard to, to go with. Cinematic I mean, movie match. With, yeah, cinematic movie match. So if we're going to go with that, then... If you sit down at the end, again, these hopefully the person that's finally deciding on what is, is put on that tape, vernacularly speaking, you, you'd have to think to yourself, okay, is this good or is it bad? You know, I know what a big fan of the business you are. If you're watching it and telling me that it, it didn't live up to what you expected, then you have to ask why. Because somebody sitting there, 
it's like the thing, you know, when I said about Cornette last year or earlier this year, whenever it was, that he got fired after months after they recorded this thing and how many people sat in the studio watching that over and over and over again and it makes air. Well, what about the people that allowed it to make air? You know, if you're so offended by it, you know, and the same thing in TNA, we had six or seven layers built in to protect against somebody hearing a spot being called or cuss words being used, that kind of thing. You know, we, we not that it always worked, but there were at least sense posts put in to protect against that kind of thing. So, like, I'm wondering who sat down at the end of this, put that final part together and said, okay, we got, we got what we're looking for. This is exactly what we want. Yeah, that's a good question because I don't know why you would uh, you would let things slip, you know, that that weren't top notch. If you had that opportunity to make sure they were top notch, um, yeah. The finish well, theoretically, a cinematic a cinematic match should be perfect, right? You would think, yeah. Theoretically, yeah. You would I mean, th- when I'm sure when they when they're putting the Marvel movies together, I'm sure if there's a, a spot where one of them misses a spot, they don't just go, "Well, we're out of time and money, guys. Let's just throw it in." Yeah, right. I, I see exactly what you're saying. Uh, did you did you notice the finish of this match? Do you know about the finish of this match or or anything like that? Uh, only what I what I'd read and what you had told me. You know. So my question to that is: Have they sent the search parties out yet? <laughs> well, yeah. That's uh, that's what I was going to say. Is Braun Strowman is now officially lost in the swamp, or may have been eaten by gators? That was uh, another oh, another sentiment that was put out there by Bray Wyatt. Um, but no one has the title. I haven't seen the title. Um, and we did see the return of the fiend on SmackDown when he showed up at the very end to stick his fingers in the mouth of Alexa bliss. He used Alexa bliss to actually get Braun Strowman chained up. You asked earlier, you know, how do you get Braun Strowman chained up? Well, a super hot blonde named Alexa bliss is how you do it. But, uh, but Alexa bliss, from what I understand, that was a figment of his imagination, but the fiend did show up with uh, Alexa Bliss I mean, while Alexa Bliss was in the ring she had just been shoved down by her partner Nikki Cross who was upset that she had just lost a match against Bailey and here comes the fiend gets the mandible claw on her and that's how we we go off on uh, Friday night smackdown which I thought was a pretty interesting way to do it uh, you wouldn't expect him to attack a woman yeah, well you know first of all uh, up front because the fans are pretty well versed and understand that it is professional wrestling I don't think there's anybody sitting at home I hope there's nobody sitting at home thinking, my God, the team just attacked a woman. Any more than they care about when a woman attacks a man or beats a man up. But again, in this world that that we're living in, this Twilight Zone, I'm just asking a question in general. Isn't that off limits to have a man, even in a mask, you know, do something like that, sexualize a woman, do something physical to a woman? Isn't that off limits? That's taboo, right? Radioactive. Well, you, you know what's interesting is I've never in my life ever considered the mandible claw sexual until it was done to Alexa Bliss, and then I was like, "Ooh, that doesn't that's that's different when when it's done to a woman by a man." Like it's a it's a very interesting move. Not saying that you know that we should cancel the fiend or anything, but I'm just saying that that's a pretty interesting way to go. And, and I also I'm really hoping that this leads to Alexa Bliss being a heel again and going actually with Bray Wyatt. I think that could be really yeah. entertaining. Uh, Bray Wyatt might. Yeah, I, I, I mean, well, up front, I, I love the idea of, of, you know, Alexa being with him. I, I love Alexa, uh, but also the idea of being able to mix this up a little bit 
with a man doing something like that because it, it is intriguing, right? When you watch it, there's definitely something there that catches your attention. And let's face it, what 14-year-old boy isn't, isn't looking at sexualized stuff and thinking, okay, this is pretty cool. You know, I guess in general I'm trying to say them I'm, I'm trying to slam the WWE for trying to be so politically correct and then doing something like that. Again, pushing the pool. You're either, you're either pregnant or you're not. Uh, you're either doing this way that we're going to follow all the political correct rules or we're not going to follow them. Uh, you can't pick and choose it and say this one is political correct because we say it is and then not do it. I, I, I have no problem with it, but I'm sure there's a lot of people out there scratching their head going, wait, wait a second, you know, you're not allowed to do that stuff today. It's 2020. So again, we're pushing the poll. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out who is it. You know, I'm, I'm imagining in my head right now the, the pool of people that routinely, week after week, religiously watch WWE. The, what is it, million four, million five now, down to there. Those people that are tuning in, it, 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 it's sort of like the ones that tune into AEW, right? The, what do they call them? The something bros. The something bros? Name the, the what? The, the AEW fans? Yeah, they have, they have an online name for like the thousand people that are on there every week. And oh, man, so they play the inside stuff to those thousand fans. It's sort of like TNA all those years ago when Dixie Carter was playing to the 25, 35 people who were commenting online. You don't go, you've already got them, you know, so you, they're going to tune in regardless. You've got to figure out some way to pull the rest of the people back in to grow the number. Doing it when, again, I'm trying to visualize what this, what this 1.4 million fans looks like for WWE. You know, they've been so far down the politically correct avenue for the last how many years. Now suddenly they're stepping outside of that. It's over here and then suddenly come over here for this one thing and then go back over there. You know, it's either either you're pregnant or you're not pregnant. And I hope they go the other direction because, let's face it, we're watching the ratings for WWE and Raw drop like a stone in water. And if you'd have told me 20 years ago when I was competing against Vince McMahon and the WWE, that there will come a time in the future when he's sub-2 million week after week after week. I've never bought it. Uh, I believe that you could put a broom versus a mop and you draw there. I, I figure I'd always believe then back in those glory days that they had a core audience of four or 5 million people that would watch regardless. Well, clearly they don't. And we've now gone below that. Look, every that doesn't think I know what I'm talking about. Go back and look for the last 20 years, every subsequent year, the ratings have been lower than the previous year. And they continue in that trend. My question, like I asked before we came on the air, is at what point does uh, I'm no question that there's a, an escape clause in there for the networks? Now, I don't think that they've approached it yet because, you know, the WWE is still a, a, a global brand. But at what point are the networks that are carrying that product going to say, okay, a million is a million too low for what they're paying for? Uh, we just saw Vince release his, his earnings for the, for the second quarter during this pandemic. $44 million in profit. Pretty astounding considering they've had no live shows. They've had no live audience. Their TV ratings are dropping like a stone in water. But then you act, you know, you, you step back and you say, well, well, they just got a $330 million write-off for the XFL. They just cut 60-plus salaries. You know, so easy to see how they're still profitable because they still have the TV contract money coming in. What happens if the ratings fall so low that those ratings, that those TV contract dollars start to drop or disappear? That could be the pro wrestling apocalypse that you're talking about. Yeah, amen. The, the, the pro 
proverbial kiss of death. Man, you said a man like like you. Is that something that that you would like to see happen? Like, no, no. Honestly, my my differences with Vince aside, I want to see WWE get red hot again. I want to I want to be able to tune in on Monday night and be damn compelled to tune in. Right, because when they're going good, the industry's doing good. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When the industry's going good, everybody's making money. Uh, when the industry's doing good, the fans are getting great programming. I believe competition is a stalwart in any industry, not just pro wrestling. And we've seen how many years without real competition, what we've gotten. And I don't think there's any fan that would say, hey, what I'm getting today, I'd much rather have than what I was getting 20 years ago. You know, so I want to see everybody get red hot again because I want to be able to sit back with my fat ass and sit down in the recliner on Monday nights and Friday nights and Wednesday nights and watch some great pro wrestling. Till now, there's been nothing to compel me to do that. I can understand that. You know, normally I, I would say uh, I would say you know a million arguments why you should watch wrestling, but it's been I mean, being a uh, a quarantined wrestling fan. It's not uh, it's not been the funnest time for sure. Did you see where Matt Cardona showed up on um, AEW? I did. He looked like a million dollars, right? Yeah, he looks great. Uh, and there's excitement <laughs> there to that. You know, now I, I want to see how it pans out. You know, let's play this through and let's see where it goes. You know, my biggest thing with AEW and NXT right now is both shows look the same. You know, you turn, you flip one channel to the next, and other than the difference in the look of the arenas, you wouldn't know if you're watching NXT or you're watching AEW. The shows look pretty much the same. You know, when I go to the, the ice cream store, I don't want this offered French vanilla, vanilla bean, and old-fashioned vanilla. I want some... White House, I want some pistachio, I want some moose tracks. Once in a while, I like Superman. Uh, you know, but but I want a choice. A real choice, not just a little difference of the color of my vanilla. Right. I can totally understand that. Uh, Superman ice cream is good on occasion. Uh, not not all the time, but every so often. You're damn right, Superman's good shit. I have given up sugar, though. I'm, I'm on the uh, the franchise diet. I've been I've been taking the Wait. carnitine. I've been doing the uh, the meat and veggies only, some cheeses and things like that. No pasta, no flour, no wheat. I've actually lost nineteen pounds in six weeks. Oh, yeah, and you will, dude. I got some recipes I'll send. I, I make one for my son and I: uh, fried rice made with rice, cauliflower instead. I mean, it's better than regular fried rice. Well, I, I can't wait to get that recipe because I am definitely looking for different things so that it doesn't get uh, mundane. That's the that's the problem. I don't want to I don't want to get in any type of zone where I'm like, oh man, this is getting really boring. I want to start eating spaghetti again. So I'm, I'm trying to trying to stay on the diet. I'm looking at it. It's not a diet, but a lifestyle change. Absolutely. Have you gotten to the point yet? When I first started going, about six seven weeks into it, I, I was just hankering for pasta, real pasta. So I made a big pot of homemade sauce and I boiled up the pasta and I was I, I thought it was gonna taste like sex, right? When I bit it, don't get me wrong, it was good, but it wasn't as good as it used to be. Like my like my taste buds had changed or something. Have you gotten to that point yet? No, I haven't got there yet, but I haven't actually had any pasta. So I, I haven't I haven't like uh, I haven't tried any pasta since I started. So maybe it would be like that. But I have been eating the uh, palmini. Have you ever had palmini? Palmini. Palmini is uh is like it's made of of palm trees but it's like the consistency of spaghetti and if you cook it in butter long enough which is a pretty long time like about an hour 
in butter. It it actually tastes oh. like spaghetti, and it has no carbs. Really not. Well, I haven't had that. But we don't have it up here, but I've I've gotten my son. You know, if you've ever tried the spaghetti squash, yeah, pretty we, damn good. Yeah, I do uh, that too. And then they have like those uh, pastas that are real, real, real high in fiber, so you get almost no. You get like five or six carbs. Oh man, I don't know. I don't know about those. You're gonna have to send me those for sure. Yeah, you can get them like at any Aldi's or you know any grocery store. They carry them. Not cheap, but you know they're they're pretty damn good. My son prefers those. I get them a chickpea. Fettuccine and dude, I've tasted it. It's awesome. I mean, it's pretty, pretty damn good stuff. We are definitely going to have to release the uh, the franchise diet keto episode sometime in the future. But this week, we are talking about Dominic Danucci. And if you are ready to get started, I would like to discuss some things about this man before we actually talk to the man. Well, you know what? He first of all, he's excited about it. Uh, but I just after I've known Dominic. 1978. I just learned something new about Dominic this past week, and I'll share that during during this segment of the episode. Well, I'm excited to hear about yeah. it, but let's start out from the very beginning. Dominic Nusserone, is is that the way that you say it? Nusserone? Nusserone. Nusserone. Dominic Nusserone, better known as Dominic Danucci, was born January 23rd, 1932 in Venice, Italy. He spent some time as a, as a Greco-Roman wrestler before his pro wrestling debut in 1958. Have you heard any of the stories of his time in Italy or, or what he did in the first 26 years of his life? Yeah, well, actually, he, he didn't uh, he didn't break in in, in wrestling amateur or pro in, in Italy. I, I thought that for the longest time. That's one of the things I'd learned uh, here very recently, like in the last six months. He did not wrestle until he moved to Canada, to Montreal. He was then trained, and he can't remember their names, by two uh, Frenchmen. One was in the Olympics, and the other one had an extensive amateur background. Uh, Dominic, when he first moved to Montreal, when he left Italy, he had the choice of, because of the war, he couldn't come straight to America. He had the choice of Chile, uh, Australia, and Canada. So he took Canada because he wanted to get to the United States. When he went there, when he first got there, got off the boat, the first winter he was here, he came here in February of 1951, I believe it was. He, he went out and shoveled sidewalks and driveways and streets. Uh, and then he got a job uh, working on furniture. Uh, you know, redoing furniture, re- you know, back then people would take their furniture and instead of getting a new piece, they would, you know, he'd go over it. And so he still to this day can, can do a pretty damn good job on a sofa. <laughs> wow. Now, well, there's something that I didn't know. You know, he wasn't always Dominic Danucci. Like you said, when he debuted in Canada in 1958, he actually donned the face covering as the masked Marvel. This, uh, this wouldn't last long though. The next, uh, next gimmick that he would have is he was actually, uh, Dino Bravo's kayfabe brother in 1959 as Dominic Bravo. Have you heard any stories about yeah. this time in his rookie years of the business? Yeah, uh, you know Dominic talks about it. And, and first of all, at 88 years old, his memory, especially like he'll forget things today, like you know that we did something last week, whatever little things. But his me- his recollection of memory from back then is flawless. Like he'll he'll be telling you a story and he'll say. On February 1st, 1951, and then he'll pause and say it was a Friday. And I go, come on, you made that part up, right? <laughs> he goes, oh, he looks, like Dominic doesn't get like when you're ribbing him like that, he thinks you're, you're, you're calling him a liar, and he gets a little indignant. But yeah, he, 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 so he, when he talks about his early career, including the math gimmick, uh, he talks about like how little he knew of the business, but you know, he had gone, I think he said he was making $1.25 an hour. 
uh, doing the furniture, and suddenly he was making 50, 60, 75 bucks a night. That was like a million dollars to him. He, he has a lot of really fun things to say about the original Dino Bravo. Taught him a lot. Really looked up to him and respected him. Now, in the 60s, Dominic wrestled in Australia for a promotion called World Championship Wrestling. I had no idea that there were two WCWs in history until I researched for this show. It's something that I learned brand new. I had no idea. I didn't either until we were prepping to go to Australia. What, like, I think it was November of 2018. You know, we went over and, you know, Dominic was really looking forward to it. He had, you can imagine, some really fond memories. First of all, he was a huge draw, like Bruno San Martino type draw in Australia. You know, because they too, like America, had a huge Italian population. And uh, back then, the airline tickets, you'd buy a round trip ticket for whatever the cost was, but it was only good for one year. So if you didn't return in that first year, you had to buy a whole new ticket. So when Dominic was there the first time and they put the belt on him, they were selling out, throwing huge houses. Dominic was really getting over. The promoter at that time was Jim Barnett of pro wrestling fame, uh, later of the second WCW fame. He sent Dominic home right before that ticket wore out, sent him back to San Francisco uh, with Roy Shire, and he was there for three weeks and got called back because the house was dropped. And he went back, I think, for another year. But yeah, he, he, he was quite, you know, I, again, I didn't realize until I started, you know, digging into it, getting ready for that trip over, you know, that it was A, called WCW, and B, how big he was. Over it. He never, he, he talks about Australia, but he never puts himself over and talks about, like, the big draw he was. You know, once I found that out, you know, when then went over, you know, there were, there were quite a few fans there that remembered him even all these years later. Well, he was pretty successful there. I mean, winning the IWA World Heavyweight Championship from Killer Kowalski, and then three other times after that, plus winning the IWA tag titles with Mark Lewin. He, he brushed elbows with some big-name stars in Australia like Larry Hennig, Harley Race, Dusty Rhodes, Ray Stevens, Andre the Giant, Bruiser Brody, and even Bruno San Martino all wrestling in Australia. I would love to watch some of this stuff. Like, how do you even go about finding this stuff? Well, that's the kicker. Much like studio wrestling here in Pittsburgh, the TV stations back then had no thought of who would care to watch this stuff 20, 30, 40 years from now. And so each television station had a certain number of tapes. And when that, when they got to the end, they'd go back to the beginning and erase that tape and tape over it. So there's very little footage that remains of WCW. There is a documentary. Oh, what was the name of it? Uh, there was a documentary about Australia wrestling in WCW that had pretty much all the existing footage in it. So they use it over and over again in, in the documentary. Dominic has it. it uh, the name slips me right now, but it, it's uh, really cool stuff. Uh, King, uh, uh, King Iakea was another one that was there. King Curtis. Yeah. He was another one that was there. Huge star at the time. Huge heel star. You know, they had a really, really prodigious talent roster there and a lot of great local wrestlers as well. Well, I would love to see that documentary. If you get a chance to uh, to make me a copy or something and send it over, I would uh, absolutely love to see it. You know, at a point at this point in his career, he's a rambler. You know, he's going all over the globe: Canada, Australia, the United States, even Japan, where he wrestled Giant Baba. Has he ever told you stories about this time on the road globally or working with Giant Baba at all? Oh yeah, yeah. He, you know, Baba. Because Baba and Bruno were very close, and Dominic and Bruno were very close. So, you know, Baba, 
really liked and respected Dominic and knew he could have great matches with him. You know, Dominic, by today's standards, Dominic wouldn't fit in well today because he was not, he couldn't evoke character, you know, that became so common in the 80s and 90s and, you know, during my tenure. But Dominic in the ring was fabulous. You know, Dominic knew the inside, you know, he knew the ring at the back of the band. You know, so Baba back, you know, back then, Japanese wrestling, much like today, when somebody makes it to the top of the Japanese charts, you know, in wrestling, you know that they're damn good. Because the dojo system that they have in place there, you know, you don't just pay somebody 1500 bucks and get trained to be a wrestler in Japan. You know, but because Dominic was so proficient in the ring with his amateur background, you know, Baba loved him. And what side note I should throw in here about his, his amateur background is when he was being trained by these Frenchmen, he was not being trained for professional wrestling. He was being trained for amateur wrestling. And he won a tournament. I'd always thought it was in Italy. I knew that, you know, for the long, for most of the time I've known Dominic, I knew that he had won the right to go. Uh, he had placed in the Olympic trials. So he was able to go. He was, he, he was in place to go for Canada at that time, I think 1956, if I'm not mistaken. And I think it was in Melbourne. He had won the right to go, but unlike today where, you know, you have the U.S. Olympic Committee and the, the country pays for it, back then you had to pay your own way and Dominic was making a buck 25 an hour. Could, could no way, so he had to forego the Olympics for his pro career. Well, he debuted for the World Wide Wrestling Federation, what we now know as the WWE, in 1967 and stayed till around 1982, 15 years with the company, multiple tag title reigns. I know you know all types of stuff about this time in his life. How does he reflect on his time in the WWF? Well, he's very proud of what he accomplished there. Uh, the reason he stayed that long is because Vince McMahon Sr., had always told those guys in Bruno's group, like Bruno and Mike Cicluna and Dominic and so many other guys, that if, he, if they stayed loyal to him, they'd have a job for life. Unfortunately, when Vince Jr. bought it from his father, the first thing he did was to fire all those guys. Uh, Dominic had left shortly before. Sr. still owned it. Uh, it was in the Shea Stadium match. He wrestled Cicluna. And I think you know it was a sellout crowd or damn close to a sellout. When Skoland handed Dominic his check, I think Dominic said it was for 1500 uh, I may be wrong on that, but it was far below what he expected to make him pay off because of a house that size. Vince Sr. said, well, I've got expenses. And Dominic folded the check up. And I'm sure he'll tell you this story because he, he tells it to everybody. He folded the check up and he pulled his shirt pocket and put it in. And he said, then you need this money more than I do. That was the last day he worked for WWE. WWF. Wow. So... 1982 is a big year. You know, uh, Dominic DiNucci leaves the WWE, and uh, I was born in 1982, and Magnum P.I. was on your television. E.T. and Rocky Three were on the big screen. Thriller was the biggest album in the country, and the franchise Shane Douglas was just breaking into the business and getting trained by Dominic DiNucci. I want to know what that was like. So let's start with how you met Dominic in the first place, and tell us about the first day of training. Well, the, meeting Dominic for me was like meeting a rock star, right? The first famous person I'd ever met. Uh, huge wrestling fan, so this was like real royalty to me. Uh, we didn't know we were going to meet him. We, my friends and I had built a wrestling ring, and we are the original backyard wrestlers, right? Because in 1978, we built this ring of stuff we'd collected from, uh, you know, the, the, the dump, from, you know, our backyards, from... People there and dad doing the business have been there. And once we built this ring, 
couple weeks after we built it, we were getting a little bored. You know, what are we going to do with it? And we decided to throw on a backyard wrestling show to raise money for muscular dystrophy. So we came over to the town that I'm sitting in right now, Beaver, Pennsylvania, and met with a woman named Angela and Paparella. And the reason I always love mentioning her name is I remember her name the rest of my life. Uh, she was a nurse who had contracted adult-onset muscular dystrophy. Uh, she was completely immobilized by muscular dystrophy. And I'm guessing probably in her 40s or 50s, she wasn't real young. You know, she'd lived most of her life, and then this got her. And this, to see how courageously this woman fought that disease, it, it, it awes me today talking about it because she could only move a few fingers. She was completely immobile. I think in hindsight, not that she ever told me this, I think she probably was a bit taken by these kids. That, I was in eighth grade. Most of my friends were in seventh grade. I wanted to raise money for muscular dystrophy. So she called me one day and she said, there's a wrestler that lives locally. He's an Italian uh, that may or may not be able to make the show that day. Well, immediately I thought of Bruno because, you know, we all knew Bruno was from Pittsburgh. I had no idea Dominic lived here. And she said, no, it's not Bruno, Sam Marquino. And she fumbled with his name, said it's something like Dominini, Dominini. And she fumbled around with it. And I said, Dominic Danucci, he was world tag champion at the time with Dino Bravo. And she said, that's it, Dominic Danucci. And my head about fell off my shoulders, you know, that he may come to this show. Well, I went out and met his wife, Janine, who passed away a couple of years ago. A sweet woman, beautiful woman. She, he wasn't home, and she told me that Dominic wasn't sure if he'd be in town at that time. But if he is, he'll try to make it. So it was very much up in the air. and we, we were afraid to advertise him being there that he may not show up and people thought, thinking we were lying. Well, the show gets ready to start. And this white LTD pulls in, and we see this big. I remember my brain. This it looked like a barrel stepping out of the car. Just this huge man getting out, and it was Dominic. You know, of course, that made us all nervous to shit because now we got to wrestle in front of a real pro. How old and are you at this time? I was in eighth grade, so 13, 14. Wow. You know, we we. Put on the show. We had practiced our matches. We just wrote them down like I guess the kids do today. Wrote like a script down and just practiced it over and over and over again. And Dominic got so excited that he came out during the main event and got in, in, involved in the match. You know, for us, we were just tickled to death over that. And afterwards, my brother was taking, my brother-in-law was taking pictures. He'd been taking pictures of the show. He took a group photo of us out in front of the, my, my friend's dad's business. And Dominic asked, he said, how old are you punks anyway? I think I was 14 and my friends were 12 or 13. You know, and he, I, I said, how old are you? And he looked at me and goes, you never asked a wrestler his age, you fucking punk. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he told me that day he was 48 years old then. And, and we've been friends ever since. So jump forward now four years, I remain sort of like a pain in the ass to Dominic. But I remain friends with him. I just stop out there periodically, not all the time, but, you know, every couple months or whatever, say hi. And became good friends with him. And whenever I was a senior in high school, I knew I was graduating and not going to be involved in sports anymore. I wanted to train just to stay active in sports, never to, never planning on an in-ring career. He, he said to me that he would only train me on one condition, that I went to college. And if I didn't go to college, he wouldn't train me. Well, I knew I was going. You know, I, that wasn't even in question. I knew I was going to be going to college. It was maybe six months ago, he and I were sitting in his living room, and he pointed out to his driveway, and he said, you see out there by the mailbox? I said, he goes, that's where your mom and dad came to talk to me to try to talk you out of wrestling. And it was that point that I realized that that was why Dominic said that to me all those years ago, 38 years ago, 
was to say, I won't train if you don't go to college. Because my mom and dad begged him, do not train him if he doesn't go to college. They were afraid that I would not even go to college. That was the first I learned that six months ago. Wow. Man, that's uh, what would you have thought at that time if you would have known that your uh, your mom and dad were talking to Dominic about not training you? Well, the, the, the amazing part to me was, you know, my, not that my mom and dad didn't like each other, but I can probably count on one hand the times that I saw them standing next to each other. All these years later, trying to imagine that my mom and dad actually got in a car and drove out to Dominic's house together just seemed really, you know, insane. You know, but they, they were so concerned that I wouldn't go to college and you know again that wasn't even part of the equation to me I, I i wasn't training to be a pro wrestler i was training just to stay involved to stay active and and, and to be around dominic i really like dominic dominic's a really really nice human being uh, just a good person that, that's where that all you asked about the first day of training my first day of training was in november of 1982 a friend of mine uh, that went to school with me, uh, he and I went out, we were both going to train. And on that first day, he sprained his ankle real bad and it scared him. But it was in Dominic's barn that still stands today. Uh, I remember it was snowing outside and snow was blowing through the barn as we were taking bumps, you know, so it was pretty pretty painful. Especially we didn't know how to take a bump. Uh, but it was freezing cold. Uh, you know, and Dominic kept saying again, 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 you know, to, you know, do it again. We didn't know what we were doing. Nice, Mick, Mick Foley there? No, Mick wouldn't come till about a year later. Uh, it was also in the winter, so I'm thinking it was a year later. Interesting. So uh, he was, was he pretty tough on you? Oh, yeah. Uh, not tough in the you – know, I've heard stories of, you know, the old-timers breaking bones and stuff, try to dissuade people to see how committed you were. Dominic never did anything like that, but he would manhandle you. You know, he would t- you, know, you could tell that you could no way out-wrestle this guy. You know, and he would take you down and, like, drive his elbow into your cheekbone and stuff and just let you know that he was in control. And he would do it at the snap of a finger. You know, like, as soon as he wanted to, boom. It didn't matter where you, if you were behind or whatever, he'd, he'd have you right down. And, uh, but he drilled into it again and 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 again. It would just do it over and over and over again so you could do it like the back of your hand. Pretty incredible to go back to that time in your career and, and actually talk about you in the beginning when you when you knew nothing and it was it was a brand new thing for you. At this time, you know, you're in you're in there, you're you've trained with him for what, uh three years? Four years? altogether, but I remember it now. I was back and forth to college, so uh, you know, I would come home on the weekends and work and train and then go back to college. Uh, you know, so yeah, I, I would say about, about a year, year and a half before we were out actually working shows. Right, so in that first year, did you think that you were actually going to turn this into a career or did you, or were no. you still questioning it? No, I, and not that I ever questioned it. I never believed I'd be good enough to have a career. You know, I, you'd, you'd, you'd watch the guys on TV and the, the best stuff you could do in the gym was nowhere close. You know, so I always tell people, and, and it's not a slight towards Dominic. Dominic really drilled into us the basics of pro wrestling and really, really, you know, just made that like breathing dodge. But Dominic was not great at teaching characterization, like would become so critical in wrestling. Dominic couldn't do a promo. He was horrible at doing promos, largely because the English, you know, the difference in language. You know, it was just a different time in wrestling. But what he did was because he taught those basics so well to us, it was easy from there to go into, you know, to go on the road and then learn from all the people we were working with and 
you know, just watching and picking it up. It's easy to pack that stuff on top of what Dominic caught us. All right, well, we'll be right back here on Franchise with Shane Douglas, and when we come back, we are going to talk to the legend himself, Dominic DiNucci. We'll be here on Franchised. Since 2001, drug companies dumped a billion opioid pills in West Virginia, causing over 3,000 overdose deaths and thousands of babies born addicted by no fault of their own. I'm attorney Stephen New. If you're the grandparent or guardian of a child born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, call me. I'll help you seek just compensation. Call the law offices of Stephen P. New at 1-844-BAD-PILLS before time runs out. Hello, Rich Quick here, long time no see, with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. And this moment is about father figures. Now, not not your actual father, because I know some of us out there didn't have one, and that's okay, because we turned out just fine now, didn't we? Yes, you did. Yes, you did. See, I'm talking about the men in our lives that we admire, that we look up to, that we want to make proud. The men that taught us, molded us, shaped us into the person you are today. Well, if we're talking about Shane Douglas, well, then that father figure has to be Dominic Danucci. Now, not only was he an extremely accomplished wrestler, he was a prolific trainer. I mean, without Dominic Danucci, we wouldn't have Mick Foley. And, you know, more importantly, though, the world may never have known the franchise Shane Douglas. Ooh, that's right. Yeah. See, Dominic is not only Shane Douglas's trainer. He is Shane's friend. And I know for a fact that Shane talks to, nay, hangs out with Dominic often. He shows respect because he genuinely loves him. So, here's what I want you to do. Now, if you have that father figure in your life, call him. Check up on him. Tell him you love him. And if your father figure isn't around anymore, well, then there is someone in your life that inspires you. I promise. Give him a call. You'll be glad you did. And if you actually had a good dad like I did... Give him a call. Tell him you love him. Because I promise, you'll be real sad when you can't. So, until next time, this has been Rich Quick with another quick moment in Shane Douglas history. Welcome back to Franchise with Shane Douglas. And I'm not with Shane Douglas right now. I'm actually with the absolute living legend, Dominic Danucci. Mr. Danucci, sir, welcome to Franchised. Well, thank you very much. I said he sits right here in the front of me. All right. Well, I'm glad that he is right there with you. He's going to hear the answers to some of these questions that I have for you. But, you know, I searched the internet over, scoured it, trying to find any information about you in Italy, and I can't find it. Can you tell us something about you growing up in Italy? Oh, I don't think that's more important than that. 
Yes, I grew up with the cow and the gold and horses to when I was 18. And remember in 19, uh, 1939, when the war was on, uh, we didn't have food to eat, but we live in a farm. We eat some potatoes. Uh, and I left when I was, I was 19 years old. I left to go to Canada. I couldn't come in, in America and I go to Canada. What year did you decide to become a professional wrestler and start training for that? Because I know you spent some time doing Greco-Roman stuff, and, and that was after you were 19, like once you came to Canada? Oh, no, yes, because in Italy, too, we were wrestled, but on the grass with all the, the school boss, you know, the guys. Right. And then when I go to Canada, I continue. In 1963, okay, I won the tournament to go in Australia. But I was making dollar twenty four an hour uh, cents an hour, and I I couldn't I didn't have no money and nobody wanted there was nobody wanted to pay you know for the Olympics. I won I won the tournament for the Olympics, and uh, I didn't have no money because you know I was just making enough money to pay the rent and, and uh, the food you know I beat the guy Maurice Rashawn's brother. Oh wow. He was, uh, Maurice Rashawn was in the 1950 or 51 in London. He won the tournament. But this was in Australia, was his brother, and I beat the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a question. And I, and I, Go ahead. Well, well just this, uh, because it's funny. Ten years later, uh, we were in Montreal, me and Bruno wrestled there. Uh, the man said, uh, introduced Bruno, and then he said that it was his father. He said, do you remember, Dominic? And his father was 10 years later. He said, yeah, you, you remember when you beat my, my son? <laughs> I said, now I should kick you in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> so back then, what exactly inspired you to want to become a professional wrestler? I, mean, I know you've done the Greco-Roman stuff, but what, what made you want to take the next step into professional wrestling? Well, uh, uh, somebody was talking to me and he said, you can wrestle amateur and blah, blah. And he said, why no? Why don't you wrestle in Montreal and you still got your job? And I did, uh, especially in the summertime because wintertime enough, you know. Uh, and then all of a sudden was three guys come picking me up. Was Tony Lanza, Hugo Robert, and the other guy was, I don't remember, was a French guy. And he said, why don't you come with us? And I said, where are you going? <laughs> That's why I started wrestling at the Forum, you know, in Montreal. And then I came in pretty good. You wrestled in all kinds of countries. You were all over the globe, and you ended up in Japan at one point. Can you tell us anything about what it was like to work with Giant Baba? Uh, he was he was a big man, but you're going to respect him, because if I want to knock him down at that time, I will knock his ass down, but I wouldn't do that, because he was the boss. He was paying me. But he was a nice gentleman. But I've been I've been everywhere in the world, okay? And I see some some bad and some good. You know, uh, not not everybody was okay, you know. Uh, but you know what I mean? You know, it was in the business. And, uh, and then, like, uh, I like to kick Vince to make a man ass, but I, I can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so out of all the countries that you wrestled in, you were all over the world. I mean, you've, you've wrestled everywhere. Which country was your favorite to wrestle in? Almost everywhere. Everywhere was your favorite? Yeah, but, and Australia, well, I think, was because 
uh, Australia stay a long time there. Uh, I couldn't walk on the street in Australia the weekend, you know, for the people. Uh, because every time I wrestled in Australia was a sold out with Jim Barnett. And then, uh, I mean, it was, was good. You're a four-time made, world champion there, fight. right? Four-time world champion yes, in Australia? Yes, yes, yes. In 1972, I wrestled in Rome, Italy, and then Mickey Foley and Sid Douglas were there. And we, they sold out. We sold out to the, the big places. 1988. 1988. And, uh, you know, I was, I was everywhere, you know. But I like Japan. Because I made I made five trips or six trips in Japan, uh, twice with Bruno or three times, and the rest I was by myself. But I've been everywhere, and I I I, I really uh, sometimes I look upstairs to thank God it came to the life to to do that, you know. Uh, so anyway, now I'm too old. Well, speaking of being I, everywhere, you spent about 16 years in the uh, WWF, now known as the WWE. What is your uh, your take on that? Like, uh, how do you look back on that portion of your career? Uh, I really I don't want to say that, but because I didn't make enough money there, uh, <laughs> so, so I don't really give a shit. <laughs> 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 you know. But anyway, that. But you know, really, I've been everywhere. Yes, and I did everywhere. I did okay. If you're going to tell me what was the number one, right? Number one was Australia. Then in America, New York, you know, that's everywhere else, you know. Uh, but I was lucky. I don't know. Uh, I did very well. And now I'm too old. I can't do shit. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I got to hear a Dominic Danucci Bruno story. I know you've got to have a good Bruno story. I, I, any one of them will do. I just want to hear something about you and Bruno. Well, uh, Bruno, uh, that's a fact. Now, what I'm going to tell you, because it happened. I'm not to make up a thing. And uh, uh, Bruno came in for 11 days in Australia. And we were in Sydney. It was two ladies, uh, because Jim Barnett uh, at that time, uh, Jim Barnett, they shouted to me, Let's go pick up Bruno at the airport and blah, blah. And, and we go in the hotel. It was two ladies from New York. My Jim Barnett knew this woman. They were single. He was single there. And uh, <laughs> he said, uh, uh, Jim Barnett, he said, this is my boys. <laughs> and when we left, when we walked a little bit, he said, that's son of my bitch. That girl would think we were fair. That was really, you know, we laughed a couple of hours with that. Tell him about when Bruno slipped down the stairs. When Bruno, <laughs> when he slides slide down? Yeah. When you have a woman. Oh, shit, yeah. Oh, yes. The slide was swim. And he, oh, my. That was funny. I think he got hurt, too, but it was funny. Oh, you got to tell me the story. Laughing. You got to tell me the story. What happened? Well, he, he, he slid down the water. Oh, shit. We were outside of the... I don't know if it was... In, the wall. The wall was... Somehow the wall was a couple of walls when we go in. 
it was close to the beach, but I don't remember where the hell it was. And you, <laughs> you slide down into the wall. <laughs> Climbed up over the other side and Trap, yeah. No, that was in, in Florida. Yeah. No, 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 no. We were going to Australia. Yeah. And um, and he said that you sleep, uh, go work out here. I'm going the other side of the bridge. Little bridge, small, like seven feet high, and all on the stone. And then he go on the other side. He was swimming, waving to me, and uh, and then he come back like. For 35 minutes, and you go up to the step because it was step to come up, a step to go down. Seven steps. Now, when he come up at the seven step, because he was wet, he slide down on his ass all the way down the seven step. And he said to me, he said, <laughs> God damn. He said, and he said to me, he said, and now if I was by myself, I would goddamn go back home. And I said, I said to him, and what are you going to say to your wife when you go home? You're going to say you hurt your ass? <laughs> <laughs> so he so said to me, shut up, let's go. <laughs> uh, was, but with uh, Bruno San Martino was uh, the best man uh, you don't find anymore. Like that. I don't care who it is, you know, it's a... Uh, he was an honest man, and, and God was was like a like a prince for me. But that's where it is. I got one more question for you, and then I will let you go. But I got to get the dirt on Mr. Shane Douglas. How was he as a student? I know you trained him. You trained him and Mick Foley. And I just, I just got to know, you know, what was a young Shane Douglas like in class? Was the was it tough to train this guy or give me, give me no, some dirt on him. They, no, they, they were not uh, bad guys. They, because when you start, because when I, you was go back to me, the first couple of times you have to listen to who teach you, you know, there's no way you say, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. You can't. I tell you what to do. And that's what I did. I bothered him. And, and they catch on fast, okay? Because one time we got about 15 guys in, in the school, you know, uh, and they did very well. But Mickey Foley and, uh, and Shane Douglas, Shane Douglas was almost number one. Shane Douglas was the next two. And the rest, I don't know. Some, um, but it was up. Sometimes it was rough, you know, because everybody won learn fast but you can you know and uh, because when they, when they teach me you listen what they tell you and then you go there and you try to do if you do wrong do they stop you if not you continue and they were doing the same thing so they were they were no bad kids you know so <laughs> I was the best looking though oh he was no he wasn't <laughs> 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 you you are a nice looking. I kiss my ass. <laughs> I'll tell you later. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I really appreciate you stopping in with us today, Dominic Danucci. I am glad to have you on the show, and thank you so much for training our favorite pro wrestler and giving us this opportunity thank to actually even have this podcast. If not for you, this wouldn't even exist. <laughs> thank you very much. Huh? Big thanks to Dominic Danucci for stopping by and talking to us here on Franchise with Shane Douglas. Shane, thank you so much for making that possible. I see what I mean about his recollection of, of stuff from way back. I mean, he, he remembers stuff better than I remember stuff. 
<laughs> he does. He definitely does. And it was great to have him on the show. Now, sir, I've got two episodes to unveil to you of what you're going to be doing in the future. And I'm not even going to say next week because with all the crazy things you have going on, we, we never can guarantee that it's going to be every week, but we will be coming. Yep. And the next two episodes, I am ready to unveil. Are you ready for them? I'm ready to hear we are going to scratch off the memory bank and make sure that you uh, that you think really hard on this one because our next episode will be about Ultimate Jeopardy 1994 ECW Ultimate Jeopardy in 1994 great uh, great pay-per-view and a great night for you and we are going to talk about the pay-per-view in detail are, are you going to be okay with that Oh yeah you know I, I what I love about this is you know Again, like I, like I said, what I'm always so amazed by Dominic's memory is I go back and, you know, bone up on the stuff. It's all there in my brain someplace. The stuff gets confused. You confuse this pay-per-view with that pay-per-view. Uh, so I like to go back and research this stuff because it brings it all back fresh into my brain. So I, I love talking about ECW the time we get because it, it really did transform wrestling at the time. We didn't realize it, but, but you know, I think the fans see it and understand you know, what a milestone ECW was. So I'm proud to talk about it any time I get a, get a chance to. Well, speaking of ECW, the next episode after Ultimate Jeopardy 1994 is going to be an episode about a time period that you actually weren't involved in. But I really want to hear your opinions of everything that did happen during this time. And we are going to be talking about ECW in the WWE. The WWE's version of ECW is definitely the lackluster version. We've seen zombies and vampires and all kinds of weird things, and we're going to talk about all of it. We're going to talk about exactly why it didn't work, and was it even a good idea to begin with? Could it have been done better? We're going to talk about all of that with the franchise himself in uh, in two episodes from now. Yeah, I look forward to that as well. Uh, you know, got very strong feelings on it, obviously. Uh, but something, you know, and, and to be able to clarify some, some things, I've, I've made some public comments already about it, and give a chance to clarify that as well. So, uh, yeah, I think the I think the fans will be quite interested to hear what I have to say about it. It's going to be great. Two episodes that are coming your way on the franchise stream. Make sure you follow us on Twitter. Make sure you follow us on Facebook. Make sure you follow us on Instagram. Join the Facebook group. Just get involved however you can and make sure that you are locked in with us every single time we release an episode by hitting subscribe on your favorite form uh, you know, of, of getting your podcast. Wherever you get them, subscribe to Franchise with Shane Douglas and you will see every episode as it comes out so you get it first now um we've been here for quite a while and i think the only thing that's left to do is you sir to take us home well first of all you just heard it from the man himself a true living legend and professional wrestling dominic Danucci. ask yourself after hearing this episode why dominic Danucci is not in the wwe hall of fame clearly deserves to be ought to be should be and should be given the chance to enjoy it while he's still here. 88 years old, going strong, and going to make another 88, I believe. Tune in next week. Get more information like this. You can only hear it in one place, right here. Tune in next week and hear that. Or get your ass franchised. <laughs> I was the best looking, though. You are the nice looking that kissed my ass.
This has been a product of Superior Radio Network. At the law office of Stephen New, we take a team approach to your case. Our staff and paralegals are excellent and will assist you through every step of your case. We employ world-class experts to make sure that your case is developed to its maximum value. When you seek legal counsel, choose Stephen New and his team. They'll work together to achieve the best results for your case and support you every step of the way. Our clients, why we do what we do, the law office of Stephen New.